In this podcast, I'm sharing my passion and curiosity for soft robotics, where we share inspiring stories about the work we do and how we can push the limit. I am Mara Dweeney, and this is Soft Robotics Podcast. I would like to ask you first, how you see um, the development of actuation? Because we have a, a recent paper also in Science Robotics that we have to avoid soft for the sake of being soft all the time. So when you see this kind of actuation technique developed in the field, what is your thought about what may be limitation or what could be area or direction we have to consider when we design the actuation for soft system? Yeah, good question. And I think we do have to avoid trying to getting carried away with the hype and, and excitement mm -hmm. about uh, things that move. Relatively easy to do, but I think the important thing is that we're trying to develop a technology, you know, a useful technology. So it really comes down to what kind of applications mm -hmm. are we trying to fulfill and matching the technology, artificial muscle, soft actuators, you know, to those technologies. And I guess what I've discovered along the way is that every time there's a, an advance in the performance of artificial muscles, it kind of opens up new applications. But the real ones that we're after, you know, uh, the real applications like wearable robotics or, or miniature uh, flying machines and so on, I think there's still a long way away. We've got a long way to go to get the actuators to meet those kind of requirements. Mm -hmm. And do you think we, um, I, I don't know if you agree with that, but do you think sometimes it is, it's hard to understand how artificial muscles work and how to replicate them? Um, I don't know, generally speaking, in the field, do you think we like this kind of understanding how we can use the material or, for example, the trade-off that we have in the design? What could be this kind of unavoidable trade-offs? Because, for example, you're already one of the father of course, polymers, and they, so, for example, the IBs, they have already this kind of trade-offs. And sometimes there's, yeah, avoidance to them because of the lacking the, the desired functionalities or understanding how we can, pushing their capabilities I don't know what you think about that. Yeah, <laughs> it's a tough challenge, isn't it? I mean, there are trade-offs for sure. And there are, there's uh, multiple goals, you know, and targets and, and performances that, that we have to try and meet to make it useful. It's not just the technical side of it, but it's, it's also just the, uh, you know, obviously the economics. And mm -hmm. I think also the complexity. You know, one of the things that uh, was, I guess, perhaps, bit surprising to me, but the accessibility to some of these technologies, if you can sort of go to really simple materials and that are readily available, then it really does make it more accessible to uh, engineers and even hobbyists and, and certainly companies to start playing around with those materials and, and those systems. If, it, if they're exotic materials, well, it's great for academia, but it's really a barrier to get them out into the real world. So. It's a mm. challenge to meet all those those simultaneous requirements be met if we're going to get this technology out there. Mm -hmm. And what could be this kind of question we should ask in that case, if you mentioned it's a challenge? Because I think that's something also, I think at the community for next decade, we try to consider this point in particular. What yeah. could you, what do you think maybe we have to consider, maybe we have to answer certain questions so that we can have this transition from the lab to real application, if we speak about artificial muscle, for example. Yeah, okay, so for artificial muscle to get into real applications, it's like all technologies, you know, it's gotta be cost effective. 
it's got to mm. do the job at a price that is better than existing technologies. It's not simply just a matter of, yeah, we can do it, but you know, in the hard world of, of uh, business, it's got to be cost effective. So we really have to be, well, you know, if we're interested in that translation, we really have to think about cost and that's also manufacturability and, and uh, all the associated aspects around, you know, this, the lifetime, the mm -hmm. uh, recyclability, the energy costs, the, uh, the uh, sustainability issues as well. I mean, we have to be conscious of all those things. It's, that's the end game. You know, there, there's certainly still room for doing the more fundamental early stage technology development where we're exploring new materials and, and some of them are quite expensive and exotic. That's okay. Uh, that's, there's still a role for doing that, that's for sure. But ultimately, if we are at the end where we're trying to get into technology and application, then, then those business imperatives around making sure it's cost effective mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and sort of friendly are really important. That's a very good point, yeah. So coming back to your paper about using DNAs for cooling, if you can tell us just for audience, maybe first time listening, about what is actually DNAs for cooling and why do you thought about using this in artificial muscle? Yeah. The history to, to this particular paper in Science Robotics was uh, and goes back, well, a few years to the work of uh, then PhD student Nicola Martino, who's now Dr. Nicolas Martino. Uh, he, uh, in his fairly early stages of his PhD, uh, observed an interesting phenomenon with some hydrogel fibers that he was making. They were twisted yarns made of polyacrylic acid hydrogel and and he and of course like all hydrogels they like to absorb a lot of water and swell right? he was looking at what happens if you make uh, electrospun nanofibers and twist them into a yarn and then swell them and uh, we predicted that they would when they swelled they would want to untwist and they did and mm -hmm. we had some experience in those those kind of structures before then what he did, he sort of he, he glued the two ends of the yarn to a glass slide and then put it in the water. And, and this time it formed a loop and the loop wrapped around itself and, um, and produced what we now know as supercoils. And we thought, wow, that looks pretty cool. We started looking into it. And of course, nature has got there before us. And it turns out that DNA, double-stranded DNA molecules do this supercoiling as a way to pack into the cell nucleus. And they do it in a very organized way and uh, very efficiently pack very long lengths of molecules into a, into a cell nucleus. So we knew that if, you know, if it's done there in nature, then it must be a pretty useful mechanism. What could be the future when we try to use the material view, for example, DNA versus other materials, smart materials, what could be capability gain or maybe something also limitation as well. Mm. Well, we knew that from some studies on, some pretty cool studies actually, the biologists do on single DNA molecules. Now just think about that for a moment. They, they're actually able to grab the ends of a single molecule and do tensile tests on them, which is pretty amazing really. Uh, and we knew from some of their published work uh, from Ralph Sadal, for example, his lab, that they could make those molecules supercoil 
And that means that they reduced their end-to-end -end length quite a lot, you know, like 80%. And we were able to calculate that they were generating quite a lot of mechanical work um, mm. on a mass basis, actually better than muscle. So that was exciting. Uh, I'm not sure that DNA molecules actually use that mechanism to do work in our cells, but we were excited by the fact that it was possible. Now, of course, DNA has a lot of limitations as well. You know, it's it's a uh, you know it's it's um, needs its you know biological environment uh, to operate in and so on. And the mechanism for making it swell requires it to be exposed to some particular molecule, small molecules that slot inside the DNA double strand and, and make it mm -hmm. uh, untwist and, and then supercoil. So those things weren't, weren't convenient to us. We of course were interested in making macro scale artificial muscles, not at the molecular level. We, we you know, are interested in trying to make um, millimeter or even larger lengths, certainly tens of millimeter mm -hmm. lengths of fibers that we could use and, and test. So we wondered whether the, the mechanism that DNA does at the molecular level would actually translate to the larger level. And so, you know, and we luckily it does, but we didn't know that to begin with. Mm -hmm. Great. Maybe a quick question about the topology of uh, the design. How this is the morphology or the topology representation when it comes to the way the mechanism is working? If you can tell more about that. Yeah, yeah, the, the morphology is absolutely critical and it is it's quite simple. Mm. Uh, it's it's just having a, a fiber composite. So you know we've got a fiber and a matrix. Uh, the, the matrix is something that can swell, you know, so it can change its volume. And it can do that anyway. We chose to use a hydrogel that absorbs water and swells a lot. But it could be done, you know, it could be done by heat or it could be done electrochemically, or it could be done in, in different ways. But anyway, we've got a matrix that swells and contracts on demand, and we've got these fibers. Now the fibers are stiff, so they resist stretching. Mm. And they, in our case, they have to be helically oriented. So we end up with a rod or a fiber in, in which there are filaments that are all twisted together and helically oriented and held together by this swellable matrix. That is all you need. And mm. if you then make the, the volume of the matrix change, say expand, that will act against those helically oriented fibers, causing them to want to untwist. Uh, and that will happen if the ends are free to move. Mm -hmm. But if you block that from happening, then the twist is relieved by forming loops and coiling and, and shortening. And that's the super coiling mechanism that that we describe in the paper. Yeah. I guess to ask you about the, the forces, maybe all the strain reduced. Do you see the way the mechanism for swelling, for example? Because I don't know, maybe student could ask about that. Could be limitation, for example, the mechanical performance when we have the swelling mechanism. I don't know, do you think maybe other mechanism, just me, student kind of curious about other mechanism that can be used that we can, that's in style or the forces, or it doesn't affect at all in this mechanism? Oh, I know it is important. It's uh, in, in our, again, in our particular case, and I'm not saying that's the only way to do it, uh, but in our particular case, the, the matrix on its own, it, it would swell about 16 times, you know, 15, 16 times, right? Uh, 
in all directions. So mm. it's, the volume change is, is 16 times. So in any one direction, it's about, oh, what is it, about 2.3 times in isotropic swelling. Now, you, you put that same material in this twisted composite that I just described, and that then means that it swells in the diameter direction, oh, sort of around three times. But of course, with this supercoiling, it collapses in the length direction by you know ninety percent. So you, you know it's down to only ten percent of the of, of its original length. So they're the kind of strains that you can you know you can get out of it. So you translate effectively a uh, you know a a, a, a smallish volume change to something that in one direction can be huge. Mm. Now it, that's the way we did it. There would be other ways to do it for sure, and, and perhaps some of those yeah. are more convenient. Yeah, and for application, if some, we won't use that. Do you think about encapsulation will be a problem in that case? If we have to encapsulate that in liquid medium, would be also a challenge or? Yeah, look, that's for sure. I mean, I, I think one of the, the, we, the, you know, to be frank, one of the limitations of the work that we published is that to take it to applications needs a fair bit of work. We did show mm -hmm. that you could attach these uh, uh, composite fibers to some micro tools like tweezers and, and scissors and so on that I think is a good application area for people you know, who are interested in micro tools, you know, for say minimally invasive surgery. But of mm -hmm. course, to actuate ours, we have to immerse them in water. And uh, then to reverse it, we have to dry them out. Or in fact, we, what we were able to do is use an acid solution to, um, to cause them to, the volume to shrink and a base solution to cause it to expand. So we could swap those solutions. Uh, that's all right in a Petri dish, but it's a bit difficult to do, you know, inside the body. So if you yeah. want to do that, we would have to encapsulate it all and we'd have to have a way to deliver acid and base solutions to the, to the muscle. Now that's a big yeah. you know, limitation. So that's why I think for real applications using this mechanism, we would look for other ways to generate the volume change. For example, maybe we can use thermal expansion and things like uh, electrical dual heating to get the thermal expansion. We haven't done that. That's yeah. maybe yeah. a good way, a good suggestion for, for some of your listeners. Yeah, great. I'm curious about the fracture or the redundancy resilience in the mechanism. If this failure yeah. happening, how much likely it could resist this kind of, yeah, psychological load or kind of also resisting damages of this happening. Yeah, look, that's, that's always a problem, isn't it? Because, you, you know, you, we're inducing really large strains in these artificial muscles and, and a lot of materials don't like to be, and, yeah. you know, they don't want to strain that much. So uh, uh, it is a challenge. And in fact, we um, went through quite a lot of different uh, fiber and hydrogel combinations before we found one that was quite resilient. Mm -hmm. What typically what we found was that uh, with many of the combinations of, you know, we were looking at natural fibers and lots of synthetic fibers and carbon fibers and all sorts of other fibers and also different types of hydrogels. Typically, what we found was that they they certainly underwent the supercoiling contraction, but then they wouldn't go back the other way. You know, they would just stay like an, in a tight knot. Um, some of them were quite brittle. Um, that was one of the main limitations with the original hydrogel uh, yarns. They were very brittle. So we ended up with something that was certainly reversible, 
which was important, and could survive for certainly many tens of cycles without any damage, probably more, but um, we didn't test for that long. So, but mm. it, uh, I'm for sure there would be um, some of the issues around the plague, really all fibre composites like delamination of the fibres in the matrix. Mm. I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, if we tested many, many thousands of cycles, though, that would end up being the limitation of, of the particular designs that we were using. Yeah. I'm curious to ask you if there's any feature after done this paper, uh, is there any feature or functionality you wish you could have in, in DNA supercooling? I don't know, just something you sort of, maybe you try to enhance it in the coming paper. I don't know what kind of salts, I just need to use this feature, this functionality. Yeah, well, we'd love them to go a lot faster, that's for sure. So we, uh, the, the last phase of uh, Dr. Nicholas Martino's PhD was to produce this mechanism in, in composite nanofibers. Well, they're really micron-sized fibers. He uh, spent a lot of time electrospinning uh, different uh, fibers and then twisting them together. And this became really, really quite tricky experiments because they're now, you're now talking like a few tens of micron diameter fibers and they, they're quite um, difficult to even see, <laughs> let alone do mechanical tests on. But he was able to show that certainly you can, by downsizing the diameter, you can get them to go faster. Um, I, you know, I wish that we could do that fast response in you know, macroscopic fibers because they're obviously a lot more useful. So that functionality would be great. Uh, that's that remains a bit of a challenge though at the moment. Yeah. So maybe I'm curious about before doing this project. I, I don't know if there's something you thought about that's kind of the expectation how it would work. Is there something was surprising or counterintuitive? Because sometimes we think that it should system should work in a certain way. Or you, I don't know if there's something you have because you're also doing the modeling part. It seems that very good for the, in the paper that the result. But I don't know if there's any scenario you have that you didn't expect this behavior or counterintuitive and very crucial for understanding sometimes. Well, yeah, look, uh, you know, again, that going back to that first observation of, of the coiling, that was really counterintuitive. You know, we were wondering what the heck's going on there. But but at the same time, it felt familiar. You know, if you if you got the, you know, your earbuds, you got any cable or, or you know, <laughs> fiber or, or a rope or anything, it twists up, right? It, you know, if you twist a, a, a cable, it's gonna form these supercoils. So, you know, it was familiar. We, we see it every day. It's mostly a pain in the, in the neck, really. It, it causes the fibers and cables and things to tangle. The difference here, the thing that made it really interesting was that this was happening without us inserting any twist. It was just happening by swelling. And that's what sort of uh, really was surprising, but it also created a lot of interest. You know, we started thinking, hey, this is really interesting. Let's try and find out some more about it. That led us to the, the DNA and the, you know, the, the biological community had done a lot of modeling on DNA. Mm. And it was interesting because the precursor to their modeling come from this, oh, way back in the 70s and 80s where engineers had been modeling uh, uh, twisting and supercoiling in, you know, like undersea uh, communication cables and ropes and things like that. So there was a good body of mechanics already established that uh, went to the DNA biology, you know, biophysics community. And then we were able to, you know, to draw a lot of 
knowledge from that body of work and, and add a little bit to it to explain what we were seeing. Mm -hmm. Great. So when you look to proudly looked as a community, um, what do you see that the technology group looks when it comes to artificial muscles? So you have been working for many years and now it's still, there's lots of strength. But what could be technological blocks do you think when it comes to designing artificial muscle in general? Ooh, yeah, well, I guess, I guess the, the roadblocks are, are still, um, you know, well, they're, they're different for every material, I guess. You know, there's, mm. there's you know, there's there's always the, and every time you solve one problem, there seems to be the next one crops up, right? So, the, the, and whether, how long it takes to get past that roadblock sort of is almost random. You know, we all work hard and we all have lots of ideas. A lot of those ideas lead to nothing. And then, you know, sometimes you, you see some strange results and that takes you down an unexpected path. So I think as scientists, we've just got to be open, you know, keep our minds and eyes open to, to these kind of things. For, the, for these particular um, supercoil artificial muscles, uh, the roadblocks are re really around trying to get them out of the liquid environment if possible, so they still work in a more convenient way. Um, mm -hmm. And I suppose if you look at any type of artificial muscle, you know, and I've been involved with a few of them, each of them sort of has the, you know, the next challenge that we're trying to solve and whether it might be efficiency or it might be lifetime or it might be cost. You know, there's always something that keeps us <laughs> up at night and well, yeah. exercises our brains and, and, yeah. uh, and motivates us really yeah. to yeah. carry on. And when it comes to sensing, I don't know what do you think, because also in the community, there's a lot of charge about sensing. So incorporating sensing with a mechanism like that, how do you envision it? Or I don't know. Yeah, yeah I wonder what DNA does. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be the interesting thing. I, I bet I bet your nature's figured that out too. But mm -hmm. you know, if you combine sensing and actuation, then you obviously you've got a system, and that makes it a, you know something that becomes more again and, and overcomes one of those roadblocks, doesn't it? That you can start to look at applications. I don't know. We haven't looked at whether the supercoiling process introduces an element that we could detect. We, we just haven't simply haven't looked at it. It wouldn't be surprising if there was some sort of um, uh, change in in electrical properties if we had a you know a conductive element in there that we could use for sensing. So, so that's that would be a good idea. I think that would be a good project to look into. Mm -hmm. Since we've got an end, on, I have a few questions. The first one about the modeling because I think when we come to design process, still maybe curious. What could be the first step in the modeling or which level have to go for? What kind of significant parameter I have to conserve? Then you're dealing with all these parameters, which one you have is beginning to just to come up with a model that can give you insights about the design process. Yeah, I think the modeling is absolutely essential to, to do alongside the experiments and you know and to guide the experiments ultimately. And that's why you know we spend a fair bit of time um, thinking about trying to get models to work. The the um, question that we kept asking ourselves was, do we have the optimum structure here? You know, we we could see that we were getting some samples that were collapsing in length by supercoiling and generating quite good work outputs, but, you know, were we near the optimum? We didn't know. We, we wondered whether 
it was possible maybe you know if we had a different combination of materials we might get even better performance you don't know that i mean you can spend all your time just doing more and more experiments but there's limited hours in the day so if you have a model that predicts things then um it has to of course be verified by experiments so you need some experiments to start with so that was the approach we took and we just simply asked the question you know what how do you maximize the amount of mechanical work you get out of this system mm -hmm. and that's what our model ultimately tries to do and it certainly yeah. explains a lot of things and and i think there's scope to explore those models further to um, make even better samples mm -hmm. And when it comes to maybe um, ideas, when you try to see them, sometimes if you think about the crazy ideas, I don't know, some thoughts you have about integrating other materials or multi-material, I don't know. I'm just assuming if you have any crazy idea that you think you wish you can do, when is this project? Yeah, well, that uh, there is a, a question that came out of the model, actually, that I'd love to pursue, and, and that was that, we found that there was this um, trade-off between the diameter of the fiber that you were dealing with. You know, what, what is the ideal diameter? And it turns out that there's a trade-off that if you go to really small diameters, fibers, then you can put a lot more twist into them before they, um, you know, they undergo their own twist-induced coiling. And the more twist you put in, when it swells, the more supercoiling you get. So mm -hmm. that suggests it's better to go really small diameter. But then on the other hand, if you go to a large diameter, it, um, you need less swelling to get the supercoiling. So in, in, you effectively get more supercoilings for the same degree of swelling. So the question was, well, what's better? Do you go small diameter or large diameter fibers? Now, the theory says it doesn't matter. You, you get the same uh, stroke and work output regardless of the diameter. However, that assumes that the that the um, the strength of the fiber doesn't change with diameter because the strength ultimately limits how much twist you can put in. Mm -hmm. And we we but we do know that from material science, materials get stronger the smaller you make them. So I think there's an opportunity to go to really fine diameter, high strength fibers, twist them up more than you would be able to do um, based on the fact they've got a higher strength and that then you should actually get a better performance if they're made into these composites that we describe in the paper. So that's a, that, yeah, there's a little prediction sort of, it's like a speculation more than a prediction that, you know, I wish I had some time to follow up. That's a very interesting point, yeah. So, um... Uh, yeah, that's because we close the end. I, I don't know if you have any thoughts about uh, as a student about publication because sometimes you have to pressure to publish sometimes, and that's something increasing. And at the same time, you need to write to ask the right question and come up with the right problems. And it's hard to come up with the right questions sometimes. But what would be advice you give so that you can balance between what you're doing, you're really passionate about, and also publishing uh, yeah. material? Yeah. Yeah, look, it is a, a tug of war, really, isn't it, between the, the need yeah. to get the publications out and, and ultimately the quality of the, the publication. It, you know, obviously, the more work you can do, then the, you know, the paper is going to have more value. I think this particular example is, is, you know, is, um, is interesting because it, 
it goes back, this particular paper that we published just a couple of weeks ago actually started with uh, about five years ago. So it's taken that long to get it out. It took all of uh, Dr. Nicolas Martino's PhD time and then he finished and he got his doctorate uh, you know, with an excellent thesis, but we still haven't published the paper. And uh, then I went into the lab myself with help from a couple of my colleagues. And, and uh, you know, I was doing some of the last experiments and, uh, and trying to get the model working and so on with, you know, with my colleagues. And so we just felt like this was, in, we could have published early on, you know, we could have published the observations without the model without the optimum performance. We just felt it was important enough to pursue and hold off publishing until we had the full story. So mm. it took a long time. I wish it was a bit quicker, but you know, we, I think in the end, I'm very proud of, of the paper that we've, we've um, just published and grateful mm. that we've been able to publish it. What is the best advice you have ever Me personally? Yeah. Okay, well, um, it, was back when I was uh, contemplating doing a PhD. So I was, had uh, finished my undergraduate and I was uh, in between, you know, and I was just doing a, a summer vacation job at a, at a, at a um, plastics plant. And my boss, I said to him, look, you know, what do you think I should do? And his advice was get the highest education that you possibly can. Mm -hmm. So I think that was good advice. I think, you know, because he said, you know, nobody can take it away from you. And you should try and achieve the highest education standard that you're capable of. And, uh, and that is always beneficial. I think education yeah. always helps. So Absolutely. I went and did a PhD. I don't know if you have any final words you'd like to say for the audience. Any final words you'd like to say? Oh, look, I just hope that people find that this is an interesting story and that, uh, you know, I think they, if they find uh, fulfillment and in the curiosity-driven sciences, and I think that would be great. And I thank you, Marwa, for doing such a great job in promoting what we do. Thank you so much thank for having me. Thanks so much. Such a pleasure to have you. And all those listening uh, to you is very enjoyable and interesting. Professor Jeff, thank you. Thank you.